We'll hear argument next in Graham County Soil and Water Conservation District versus the United States. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the issue in this case is whether Congress expressly provided for a limitations period for retaliatory discharge action under the Federal False Claims Act. The six-year limitation period set out in Section 3731B of the Act is tied to a violation of Section 3729, that is, the submission of a fraudulent claim to the government. The triggering event to start the statute of limitations running under Section 3731B is a violation of Section 3729. Because a violation of Section 3729 is not an element of the cause of action for retaliatory discharge, Congress did not intend to provide a limitations period in Section 3731B for retaliatory discharge action. The government in its uh, amicus brief, argues that Congress must have intended a uniform limitation period so that all three actions created by the False Claims Act could be brought in the same proceeding. The, the government's argument undermines the very purpose of the Federal False Claims Act and the retaliatory discharge provision. The retaliatory discharge provision, Section uh, 3730H of the False Claims Act, not only protects people who blow the whistle, the initial whistleblower, but it expressly protects people who testify at trial. And we have seen time and again, in many of these cases, the government will keep a case under seal for five, six, seven years. We've seen repeatedly situations because of the complexity of the underlying violation of the false claim that it might take a decade from when the complaint is filed to when the case actually is put before Mr. Your Browning, this argument that you're making, where you seem to be having great solicitude for the for the whistleblowers, for the people who might be retaliated against, the respondent and the solicitor general answer your argument by saying, in all the years that 3730H retaliation claims have been available, there has been no instance of a key tam plaintiff barred because the retaliation occurred outside the six-year limitation. Yes, one could hypothesize these cases, but are there any actual cases where the retaliation in fact fell outside the six-year dated from uh, the uh, submission of the false claim? 
Uh, Justice Ginsburg, I cannot cite to a specific situation where that has occurred. And the government, you're right, makes very much of the argument that this is simply hypothetical. But it is a very real and concrete problem when you have cases that go to trial, that it takes so long to go to trial, and those people who are testifying at trial have no protection because it's more than six years from the violation of Section 3729. I, I would um, Maybe uh, they threaten. don't get deta- retaliated against if they testify at trial. Well, and if the question is whether there is a problem out there in the real world. On four people whose interest is certainly not identical to yours, Your Honor, I recognize that, but you have to look at the statute as a whole to construe it in its proper context. And there are many situations where there are a number of years pass from from when the complaint is filed to when the testimony takes place at trial. And and as the uh, amicus brief of the National Work Right Institute points out, an organization that's designed to protect the human rights of uh, employees, an organization that's a spinoff of the American Civil Liberties Union, that organization clearly views the interpretation advocated by the respondents and adopted by the Fourth Circuit as detrimental by employees. All right. It, all that's true. But the question that I think Justice Ginsburg asked was, you have on your side the whole National Defense Industrial Association. You have the Equal Employment Advisory Council that represents dozens and dozens, I take it, of businesses. We have your own client. We have you in the firm, everybody. I imagine you all racked your brains to say, has there ever been such an example? And I take it the answer is no, never. Not all of you could even find one instance where this happened. Now, am I right? Because that's what I think, unless you provide the example. I cannot cite a specific example. Justice Breyer, I would direct your attention to the case in the 11th Circuit, Childre versus UAPGA, in which uh, four and a half years had passed between when the initial allegation of — Okay. So, so what would be so unreasonable about a member of Congress concluding the following? We want these things to end after six years, you know. And there's never been a, an example of this horrible that you think of. And so we're going to end them all after six years from the time the thing took place, the cheat took place. And that's it. And if there's some other problem of the kind you're worried about that comes up, we'll worry about that later through amendment, tolling, etc. Why is that an un- — we don't want 30-day statutes of limitations or 90-day statute of limitations. We want six years. That helps most people. And if there's an odd case it doesn't, we'll worry about it. What's the answer to that? Well, Your Honor, if Congress had said that, they certainly could have made that decision. But it would run completely contrary to almost 200 years of precedent from this Court that, as a general rule, the limitations period begin, does not begin to run before your cause of action even comes into existence. Yes, that's true. It would be. And the reason we're doing it is because there is a period of time when somebody lies to the government and we don't want actions that are related to that. We'll have to go into that proof to take place more than six years later. Now, that would be the reason, and I agree it would be contrary. But the difficulty for me is the language seems to point to that reason. Well, I, I can't find that reason idiotic. Well, Your Honor, I, I don't think the language points to that, because the language of the uh, uh, the limitations period, 3731B, which is set out in the Appendix to the cert petition at page 135A. Um, the language of the statute is a civil action under section 3730 may not be brought 
more than uh, six years after the date of the violation of Section 3729. There are two material aspects of, of the statutory language. The violation of Section 3729, which is not an element of the cause of action. Well, I, I don't mean to interrupt, but it is true that this is civil action is brought under 3730H, is it not? The, the action is brought under 3730H, and Justice so Stevens. it is literally within the, the plain language of the statute. Well, it, it is and it isn't. It is clearly in 3730H, but when you look at the False Claims Act, Congress has used the phrase an action under 3730 to mean different things in various portions throughout the False Claims Act. Congress has used that phrase on six different occasions, and I would particularly direct the Court's attention to 3731C. In, in that provision, uh, Congress has provided that in an action brought under Section 3730, the United States must prove the elements of the cause of action by a preponderance of the evidence. The respondent and the government say you must have a, this literal reading of section, the phrase, an action under 3730, and it means all three causes of action um, in 3731B. But, that, but when you turn to 3731C, that virtually identical phrase appears, and you have to read that statutory provision in context. And in red, it, it in seems to read a provision like this. It says what the United States will be required to prove implicit in, in that is in any action brought by the United States under 3730. I think, I think C is clearly talking about cases in which the United States is bringing the action. Exactly, Justice Ginsburg. You have to read it in context. And I think when you read 3731B in context, and that limitations period is tied to a violation of thir- Section 3729, it is clear that Congress did not intend the phrase an action under 3730 to, re- to include a retaliatory discharge action in which uh, a violation of Section 3729. I don't think that's at all as clear as that C is directed to cases brought by the United States for the reason that Justice Breyer just explained. Congress might want to have one six-year limitation and say, well, maybe there would be this hypothetical case that you're worried about, but for the most part, six years will take care of everybody. And, Justice Ginsburg, my point is, just as Section 3730, 3731C is not intended to cover all of the causes of action under the False Claims Act, 3731B is not intended to cover all of the actions under the False Claims Act as well, that it's only intended to cover the causes of action in which a violation of Section 3729 is an element of the cause of action. The, 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 the government makes the argument that you need a uniform limitations period so these actions can be tried together, but the government ignores the fact that a key TAM action or an action brought by the government is a completely different cause of action than an action for retaliatory discharge action. They involve different substantive claims. That's true, but is it also not true that some of the people who get retaliated against may be the same people who bring the qui TAM action? In some cases, that is is the case. So that if they don't get the recover as being the victim of retaliation, they may still get a very handsome reward for what happened to them. Uh, That is the case. But but I also want to point out that in many cases, the person who brings the key TAM action 
is a completely different plaintiff than the person who brings a retaliatory discharge action. The example of someone who is retaliated against for testifying at trial, in that situation, it's clearly going to be a different plaintiff than the plaintiff who brought the original PTAM action. It can also be a different defendant. Section 3730H is intended to preclude an industry from blacklisting an employee. So if an employee brings a KETAM action while at one employer and subsequently leaves and goes to work for a second employer, when the second employer recognizes or, or learns that this employee had previously been involved in an investigation under the False Claims Act, that second employer is precluded from retaliating against the, the employee. In so, the real world, do we have such cases? Yes, Your Honor. Uh, I cannot cite to a specific case, but I'm aware that that is very much a issue that practitioners face day in and day out. Uh, another real-world question. Uh, do, we, do we have any — do you have any experience that you can rely on either — uh, to show that, in fact, these subsection H claims are brought customarily with the main QUITAM action or, conversely, that they are brought separately. Do we know what's going on? Yes, Your Honor. It is real mixed that on many cases you will see a retaliatory discharge action brought independently, and in other cases you'll see the QUITAM action and the retaliation uh, action brought simultaneously. In connection with what's included and what isn't included, the in that same 3731 provision in D, D is limited to A and B and so excludes H. And if Congress had meant that with respect to the six-year period, they could have said the same thing, that it relates to A and B and not H. Uh, Your Honor, I would rec- recognize that there is different language that Congress could have, have chosen to state this in a different way. But um, — and you're right that in Section 3731D, Congress did specifically reference uh, Section 3730A and 3730B, but Congress did not use that precision in drafting throughout the Federal False Claims Act um, just — there are a number of ambiguities that, re- that exist throughout the Federal False Claims Act. Congress even referred to the General Accounting Office as a government accounting office. They could have done the same in uh, 3731C also. Instead of just saying any action brought under Section 3730, they could have said any action brought under which one? A of, uh, of uh, which is the one that allows the government suit? 3730A. A. Yes. They could have said A, and they didn't. They said all of 3730. Yes. So, so all you can really take from the statute is that the phrase. Sloppy. Yes. Yes, Your Honor. That you have to look at the context. You have to look at the meaning. And when you're dealing with a statute that is drafted in a way that's sloppy, you have to look at what Congress really intended. And when Congress. May I ask you a question about the alternative? If we don't follow this statute, you you refer to state law for the correct cause of uh, statute of limitations, I guess. And I imagine because there are different forms of retaliation, sometimes it's a discharge, sometimes it might be slander by by defaming the person for his next employer, it might be a tort, they beat him up or something like that. There could be a lot of different kinds of retaliation, each of which would give rise to a different statute of limitations under state law. Does that seem reasonable? 
Well, Your Honor, um, this Court has faced that situation with 1983 in a variety of contexts, and there are a number of rules to fill a gap. And and in North Carolina, it's easy. It is basically three-year statute of limitations for everything. And for retaliatory discharge action, you look at the in North Carolina, you look at the, the limitations but period for Wisconsin, personal injury. Michigan, Illinois, and, and uh, Florida, maybe they all have different statutes and they have different kinds of causes of action that may be relevant in the retaliation case. Uh, Your Honor, that is certainly an issue it, with respect to the parties in this case. Um, that is um, a matter that is clear and simple because North Carolina, you look to a retaliatory discharge act. Oh, but in our construction of the statute, we have to think about its application throughout the United States, not just in North, Car- North yes. Carolina. And, and a rule um, that would apply the um, residual limitation period for personal injury would certainly um, uh, be appropriate for a situation like this. Um, is it? Um, is it a... Uh, necessary element of a successful action for retaliatory discharge that uh, that the uh, action under the False Claims Act have succeeded? No, Your Honor. The um, courts have repeatedly held that um, for a retaliatory discharge action, it is not necessary to have a violation of Section 3729. What does the government contend uh, is to be done under B-1 when no violation of Section 3729 is committed? Well, the way I read the government's brief is they want to modify the language of Section 3731B by inserting the phrase alleged um, before the phrase violation of Section 3729. Don't we have to do that anyway when, no. when in fact, the person brings an ordinary claim? No, I mean, no. Joe Smith brings a claim that... XYZ company cheated the government. Now, that doesn't mean it was committed. It just means he says it was committed. After all, he might lose. But, but Justice Breyer, when the jury renders its verdict, if there is a violation of Section 3729 that's proven to exist, but that, that proven violation is beyond the six-year period, the defendant would be entitled to um, judgment based upon the affirmative You mean if, in fact, the plaintiff loses because the jury finds for the defendant in the Quitam action, then it should have been dismissed on statute of limitations grounds. No, Your Honor, what I'm no, saying — No, of course not, because, because the word is committed there refers to the claim of the plaintiff, doesn't it? What I'm, what I'm saying is you have to look at the facts that are ultimately proven at trial. And if the fact of the violation is more than six years from the filing of the cause of action, uh, clearly that's going to be barred by the limitations period. The word alleged does not appear in the statute. Um, and the government tries to uh, — they essentially confuse the issue by saying, well, you, you could never — a defendant could never prevail on a motion to dismiss — um, because you have to look at the allegations for a motion to dismiss. But well, that's the very that nature. If, if there's no violation, then there's no triggering event to start the statute of limitations running. Uh, yes, Your Honor, that, that's the real problem, that even under the government's reading, um, that there is not a triggering event. So when you look at 3731B as a whole, when you try to discern congressional intent, Congress intended — a um, uh, 
the triggering event to be a violation of Section 3729, which doesn't apply to retaliatory discharge action. Uh, Your Honor, um, the, the statute here is worded in such a way that throughout the Federal Faults Claims Act, there are a variety of ambiguities. Uh, but when you look at the statute as a whole, when you look at the stated purpose that Congress had of protecting people who testify at trial, there's only one way to read the statute in a way that's harmonious, and that's to read it so that 3731B only applies to um, Section 3730A and 3730B. Mr. Browning, is it proper to consider in the calculus that if you use six years from the date that the um, false claim was made or was alleged to be made, then you don't have to get into the question which state's statute of limitations, the choice of law question, and then when you identify that state, which limitation period within that state. I mean, those are two inquiries which can sometimes be rather complicated. They are obviated entirely. We take the six years from the federal statute. Uh, Justice Ginsburg, you're absolutely right that if the respondents and the four circuits reading of the statute is correct, that Congress did intend this bizarre result to take place for all three causes of action, um, then you don't have to look to state law cause of action to fill the gap. But um, there are many circumstances where this Court has recognized that you do, when Congress has not expressly provided a limitations period, the most appropriate vehicle is to look to the most closely analogous state law cause of action. As a matter of fact, um, one of the comparable situations here is ERISA. For several hundred years, haven't we, for yes. all federal causes of action, we've, we've looked to state. When there is no statute of limitations, when the question is federal statute, is there one? And my question is, deciding is there one, this is not something drawn from thin air. There is a six-year period right in this statute. There, there is a six-year period, and if that is applied by this Court to retaliatory discharge action, there will still be difficulties because you will have situations where there is no violation of Section 3729. So when do you start the limitations period running? The respondent would be, argue in their brief that you started running from when they believed that the um, violation took place. So you're, the respondent is arguing you're looking to the mental impression of the litigant that would be the triggering device for the limitations period. Your Honor, if there are no further questions, I'd reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal. <coughs> Mr. Browning, Mr. Hurst will hear, will hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the text of this statute could not be more clear on this issue. A retaliation claim is a civil action under Section 3730, and a civil action under 3730 is subject to a six-year limitations period. Petitioners argue, in effect, that the Court should disregard the plain language here and claim that Congress really meant that only two of the three causes of action under Section 3730 should be subject to the six-year limitations period those brought under Sections A and B, and that Congress told us this indirectly by changing the limitations trigger. 
This simply makes no sense for two reasons. First, there is no reason why Congress would have limited the scope of the limitations period in such a cryptic manner. In paragraph D, as Sloppiness. Sloppiness. How about that as a reason? Sloppiness that appears throughout the rest of this of this piece of legislation. Well, I would, I would propose that if Congress really wanted this trigger, wanted a uniform limitations period, they really couldn't have done this particular provision, be one in a more clear way. Do, do, you, do you know of, of any other situation in which uh, a, a time limit is imposed that has nothing whatever to do with the, uh, with the act that the individual is complaining about? Nothing whatever to do with and, the act. And, and where the time limit begins to run even before the act occurs. Before the act occurs. The answer is no, but. And the time limit could have expired before the act occurs, right? So you get free retaliation after six years, is that right? Uh, sometimes equitable doctrines might apply, but the. I, I'm not, what, what kind of an equitable doctrine? For instance, if the employer deliberately waited to retaliate uh, until the six years has passed, that could be an instance. Um, but the important thing is the retaliation provision of the False Claims Act is unique because it's designed to be a companion or an add-on action to the KETAM action. That's — if you look at the reported cases, the vast majority of those cases show the two actions brought together. I thought that one of the major things they were concerned about was retaliation against witnesses in the KETAM action. And that well, will always occur after — I mean, the, the suit for retaliation will then always occur after the KETAM action. I believe the core concern is to incentivize the whistleblower. But to take that particular situation, the witness, uh, and that concern, there are other laws and other causes of actions that will protect the witness in that situation. For instance, Section 1985, this Court in Haddle versus Harrison ruled that a witness who is retaliated against at a federal trial does have a Section 1985 action. Here, Congress was focusing on the whistleblower encouraging him to bring this KETAM action. Uh, in fact, he's only protected for activities that are, the, language, the statute says, in furtherance of an action under this section. That is pointing to the Keatham action. Um, and there's all kinds of problems that arise if these two actions are not brought together, if the retaliation action must be brought first. First, if you accept the petitioner's view, you're going to have situations where as little as 180 days, they have 180 days, like in Florida, to bring this retaliation action. Once that's gone, the, the, uh, the whistleblower has possibly six years of bringing this key time action, but no incentive from the uh, retaliation action, which can, was can, one of the can, key. Can you go back a few steps? Because there was a difference between an answer that you gave and one that Mr. Browning gave. He said it's a mixed bag. The litigation of whether it's brought in one action and the whistleblower is making mo- both claims or whether the retaliation claim is saved out and brought into separate action. You said the vast majority of the cases involve the whistleblower asserting both claims in a single action. Which characterization is right? Mixed bag um, or bad? The SG's bag? office informed us that they did a search of the reported cases, and the majority of those cases, the, the claims were brought together. The SG, I think, can give you the details right. on that. Um, I'm saying majority, not vast majority. Okay, I think we'll wait for the yes. But they point out, they realize, I think, petitioners, that this is a problem, that that this is a unique act, and they they point out, they they make the claim that the Major Fraud Act 
somehow renders this not unique. That's a criminal statute, and it doesn't have a key tam action. Um, every retaliation claim is going to be based in part on an alleged violation of Section 3729. Oh, you're reading alleged into, uh, into B-1, right? Sure, but, it will always be based on an alleged violation. So it doesn't have to be a violation. Well, no, I, I think that ignores how statute of limitations are act, actually construed by courts. You can write a statute basically two ways. You can put the violation as the trigger, or you can put the act alleged to be the violation. Courts apply those identically. And, for instance, if you have a summary judgment motion by a Keetam claim, uh, uh, Keetam defendant, which we all agree that this statute B-1 applies, all the defendant has to do is point out the act alleged to be the false claim falls outside of the six-year period, and he wins. He doesn't have — no one has to show whether the actual claim itself was false or not. So I think, you know, as Justice Breyer points out, this is the way you universally construe uh, statute limitations. Having the same trigger for all three 3730 actions means the limitations period starts for all three at the same time. This makes it easier for the whistleblower to bring both her key tam and retaliation actions together. If she's forced to bring the uh, retaliation action first, then if she misses that, then she's got no incentive to then go on and bring the key tam action from the, the incentive from this whistleblower action, which is a key purpose of it. Also, um, if she has to bring the, uh, the retaliation action first before the key action, then what will happen if she's not ready to bring the key action? These can be very complicated uh, allegations, complicated defense contract. Then what will happen is she will most likely have to split her claim. And that exposes the whistleblower to all kinds of, of pitfalls. For instance, Mr. Hurt, what, what about the argument that unlike most retaliation situations, here, if you take that six-year period, which is much longer than the general retaliation statute to take it, then you could have a key tam plaintiff who waits while the back pay uh, is mounting, and so you can have an exorbitant application, both with respect to the amount of back pay and the claim for reinstatement. Five years down the road, I haven't worked with this company now. I'm going to insist they take me back, be reinstated. That, that, that concern that on your reading, there is the potential for much larger damages and much more disruptive reinstatement than is usually the case. I think that that type of situation is just so highly unlikely and doesn't really comport with the realities of what whistleblowers are thinking about. For instance, in this case, Ms. Wilson didn't come forward until she saw no one else would come forward and remedy what she saw as theft from the U.S. government. No, but isn't, isn't Justice Ginsburg's uh, question raised by your very argument that you don't want whistleblowers having to bring their whistleblower actions before they are ready to bring their main actions? And if it's going to take, you, you've just said how difficult it may be to prepare one of these quitam cases. If, in fact, you're right, and it may take a couple of years from the time the employer gets wind that something's going on and fires or does whatever, then in exactly that situation, 
uh, the, the whistleblower damages are going to be mounting during that period of one or two or whatever years it may be before the Quintam action starts. So on your hypothesis, it seems to me, you're going to get just the situation that Justice Ginsburg raised. I think that I think there's a split in the lower courts about how the mitigation. Well, let's let's first see about your argument. Isn't that what your argument implies? I think that 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 is a possible case, but I think that that's the the priorities for the government and and Congress in drafting this law was to get money back for the government. That's their number one concern here, and to incentivize that whistleblower. If it so happens that the whistleblower takes much it takes a long time to prepare his ketam and brings his whistle his his retaliation action at the same time and, and ends up getting some more damages, I, I think that ranks low on the list of Congress priorities in drafting this retaliation provision. It's the government getting the government's money back, giving the whistleblower protection and incentive to bring that ketam claim is really Congress's core concern here. And I think these other issues about damages mounting can be readily addressed with the mitigation defense and and dealing with that that will take care of double damages. So so if the whistleblower is just sitting around waiting for that, then the mitigation uh, defense would take care of that. Um, also, uh, I think the petitioner raised the idea that this is some kind of the relator – the retaliator uh, can bring some kind of nebulous fraud allegation that doesn't ha- isn't really tied to a specific false claim. I think that the courts are not interpreting it that way because y- this is a false claim act retaliation claim, not just a generalized fraud claim. So in the typical case, there will be a claim that, uh, that the whistleblower will, will be able to point to and say, I think that this claim is false. I have a good faith belief that it's false. And then it, and, and that's what the trigger would be based on. I mean, in summary, if there's no further questions, I'd like to just summarize. Um, I think this court should uphold the plain language of the statute. While the limitations trigger is unusual, it is the one that Congress set forth in the statute. It makes sense. It reflects the unique considerations of encouraging, uh, the goal of encouraging a whistleblower to bring his KETAM claim. With his retaliation claim, 19 years of experience have shown that the plain language works in the typical cases that arise and that none of the reasons given by the petitioners come close to providing a justification for this court to discard the plain language of the statute. None of the reasons this statute does not rise to the level of absurdity that would justify this court disregarding the plain language. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Hurd. Mr. Dreameyer, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Section 3731B provides the statute of limitations for, quote, a civil action under Section 3730. There is no question that Ms. Wilson's claim of retaliation is a claim under Section 3730. Petitioner asks the Court to construe Section 3731B to include an implicit limitation to claims under subsections A or B. What he's saying is it should be read to include only those causes of action under 3730 that the rest of B uh, makes sense uh, as applied to, just as uh, in C 
the phrase brought under Section 3730 should be interpreted to, to, to include only those causes of action that the rest of that provision uh, applies to, namely uh, those, those actions under 3730 that involve the United States. <clears throat> I mean, that, that's a perfectly reasonable word. Section 3731C does not require in its application the Court to construe a civil action under 3730 to mean anything other than what its words import, because it only relates to the United States' burden of proof. The petitioner suggested that it implicitly was limited to an action under 3730A. Well, that's certainly not true, because if an action is brought under 3730B and the United States intervenes, Section 3731C establishes the standard of proof. If Congress were to amend Section 3738 to allow the United States to bring a claim on behalf of the employee who was retaliated against, Section 3731C would, by its terms, establish the burden of proof that the United States would have to meet. So there you, you is think, no inconsistency. You think Congress there. is more likely to amend uh, uh, 3731B to say clearly and non sloppily what it means? If we find for the government here, or if we find for the, uh, I mean, for, for the side that the government supports, or if we find for the other side? Well, Your Honor, I think that 3731B is capable of application exactly mm-hmm. as written. And in fact, as we say in our brief, that that is the statute of limitations which most serves the purposes of the statute, uh, unlike the alternative. What, what about this as a general, as a general principle of construction? A court should not, unless there is uh, no reasonable alternative, construe a statute of limitations provision in such fashion that the statute can expire before the cause of action arises. Well, is that a reasonable proposition? No, sir. Not no. Th- there are any. It seems statute- reasonable to me. In many states, have adopted statutes of repose. And they apply to a cause of action that, under state law, accrues for purposes of statute of limitations uh, upon the discovery of the injury. But a statute of repose can come in and is instead tied to the act, say, for instance, on which um, the date that a product was first sold into the market. And so the cause of action for purposes of statute of limitations, will not arise in many instances until after the statute of limitations has run because of a statute of repose. So that is certainly not unheard of in the law. And that was the point that the Seventh Circuit made clear in, in That's right, Justice Ginsburg. What about an action of ejectment? Proposed. An action of ejectment that arises only after the adverse possession statute of limitations have run. That's right. There, there are other examples of, of cases in which the time in which a claim can be brought may have expired before the cause of action accrues. But we don't run forward to create situations like that, do we? Well, my, my point isn't that it couldn't exist. I just said you should not interpret a statute of limitations if it is reasonably possible to avoid it in that fashion. Well, in the Bay Area Laundry case and in the Ryder case, the Court has acknowledged that there is a general rule that statutes of limitations start to run when the cause of action accrues. But in each of those cases, 
cases, the Court was very clear that that was the rule that applied in the absence of contrary indication by Congress. And here we have a very explicit contrary indication by Congress that the statute of limitations for any civil action under Section 3730 runs from the date on which the violation of Section 3729 was committed. In other words, Congress has opted here to establish a single uniform statute of limitations for all claims that might arise under the False Claims Act. And as I said before, that serves the purposes of the False Claims Act better, far better certainly, than petitioner's alternative. As we have pointed out, many state statutes of limitations, assuming that one can determine which one applies of the many that might uh, be offered, are much shorter than the statute provided for bringing a quitam action. As a practical matter, then, an employee might be forced to split their claims. If they split their claims, any number of adverse consequences follow. First, they could find themselves barred from bringing a subsequent quitam action on behalf of the United States by the public disclosure bar of the False Claims Act. The Eleventh Circuit has a rule that says that the two claims are one for purposes of res judicata. So in the Eleventh Circuit, apparently, they could be barred by res judicata from bringing a uh, quitam action. The disclosures in the course of the wrongful termination or retaliation claim action would, of course, alert the defendant to the scope and extent of any government investigation. Well, he's already alerted to the extent that he's taking retaliatory action. It's true. He may not hold, know the, the, the whole extent of, of what the employee knows, but uh, he's already been tipped mm-hmm. off. Well, as a practical matter, oftentimes the employer fires the employee <laughs> as soon as the employer has a sense that the employee is on to something. He doesn't have a full knowledge of what the employee knows and certainly doesn't know that the employee might have told the government and that the government is investigating. And that's the purpose of the under seal requirement of the False Claims Act, to allow the government to conduct a full investigation of the claim, talk to other employees uh, about what's going on. Sometimes the employee really has identified fraud, but may only have identified a portion of a larger scheme of fraud that's going on. And the government gets to investigate that while the claim is under seal. But in the course of discovery, in any wrongful termination suit or retaliation suit, all of that information would become available to the employer. And so the seal provisions of the FCA would be defeated in large extent. There's also the fact of just the uh, litigation efficiencies of litigating the two claims together. The witnesses will be the same. Can I ask you another textual question? You you want us to say that uh, B-1 must apply to all civil actions under Section 3730. Must B-2 apply to all civil actions under 3730 as well? The most close reading uh, of the text would be that any civil action under 3730 can be brought within three years of when the official of the United States. Now, we differ from the Ninth Circuit on this. We believe that is only a government official, uh, in particular a Department of Justice official, knows of the facts relevant to bringing a cause of action that the United States could bring, i.e., a cause of action under 3730A. But we think that three years from that date, any action under 3730 could be brought, including a quitam action or including a retaliation action. But that reading is not essential to 
uh, the position that we advocate here. So that, that, that could exclude uh, even a retaliation action by an individual who, who, doesn't, who doesn't know when the, when the individual, uh, the official of the United States, uh, found out about those facts. That, that doesn't seem to me very reasonable. Well, of course. That provision is very, very reasonable as applied to KETAM actions. It doesn't seem to me to make any sense as applied to a retaliation action. Well, Your Honor, it, it does make sense applying it to a retaliation action because it could be, for instance, the employee who was the individual who informed the government official charged with responsibility to act of the facts that would warrant the United States in filing an action under the Might be, but maybe the United States found out before 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 that individual uh, came forward. Maybe there was an official that's, in the United possible. States who knew it. And so he's, you know, he's he's out of out of time before he, he even knows about it. Well, there, there may be events that — there may be instances where the employee would not know that they could take advantage of that provision. But in the Bay Area Laundry case, the Court considered and rejected a virtually identical argument. That case, the statute of limitations also was stated in the alternative. Um, and the second one was three years after uh, the information necessary to the claim um, had arrived. And the, the party who was opposed to the position the Court ultimately adopted said that the Court's interpretation of the first of the two alternatives would render the second superfluous. And the Court said, well, it may be superfluous to this category of claims, but it's not superfluous to other categories of claims. And so that does not prevent us from construing the first provision in the way that we are. So likewise, even if the Court were to conclude that 3731b2 is unavailable to a retaliation claim or unavailable to a quitam claim, as some courts of appeals have held, it would not mean that 3731b1 is unavailable. Just as holding that 3731b2 is unavailable to a quitam relator would not be, mean that 3731b1 is unavailable to a quitam relator. The, a couple of justices just oh, but it but it would mean that just as thirty thirty seven thirty one b two can be selectively applied to some categories and not to others, so also by parity of reasoning b one can selectively be applied to some categories of violation and not to others. Well, again, we believe that the best, most faithful reading of the text is that b two is available to all causes of action. Under 3730, uh, the question, Justice Souter asked a question about statistics and the frequency with which the claims are litigated together. In a review of Court of Appeals decisions, there were uh, 51 Court of Appeals decisions actually involving a 3730H claim. Of those, in 32, the quitam, a quitam claim and a retaliation claim were paired. They were litigated together. In only five were both a quitam action and retaliation claim brought, but brought in separate litigation. So 32 to 5 is the relevant comparison there. What about the rest? In, in 14 claims, a, an individual brought a retaliation claim but never brought a quitam suit. It may be that the government had sought Well, I would that count claim. that as being brought separate. I think you should add that with the other five. Well, Your Honor, in fact, if we, if we look more closely at those 14 cases, five of them were dismissed because the plaintiff was not even involved in protected conduct 
under the statute. So the closer you get to the core of what Congress had in mind when it enacted the statute of, of, of pulling out employees who have the information that only they have that the government needs in order to recover fraud, the closer you get to that core, the more likely it is that the claims are going to be litigated together. And that's the way the Court ought to apply the statute. It's the way Congress wrote the statute, to serve those purposes. The uh, — I think that the alternative of applying state statutes of limitations raises uh, — North Carolina does not dispute that, for example, in Florida, the, the analogous statute of limitations under Florida law, it's the Florida State False Claims Act, which has a retaliation provision, would be 180 days. 180 days is far too short to put together the complicated quitam complaint um, that is called for under the False Claims Act. Apparently Florida didn't think so. Excuse me, sir? Apparently Florida didn't think it was too short. Well, Florida may have made an alternative policy decision in terms of wanting the claims to be litigated together or apart. Uh, Congress has established a single uniform statute of limitations which allows the claims to be litigated together. And as I've said, that is, in fact, the practice, that when someone is going to bring a quitam action, they almost invariably, there, there are five exceptions, bring the cases together. If there are no further questions, thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Dreemeyer. Mr. Browning, you have eight minutes remaining. Thank you. The government argues that there will be problems that will arise from splitting the KETAM action, the retaliatory discharge action. And one of the examples that the government use, uses is the public disclosure doctrine, which is set out in Section 3730E4A of the False Claims Act. The public disclosure doctrine, however, is a red herring here, because the public disclosure doctrine is designed to keep uh, to avoid parasitic lawsuits where information is in the, the public domain, somebody taking that information and then filing a, a KETAM lawsuit. The, the public disclosure doctrine, um, 3730E4A, also provides that when someone is the original source of the information, um, even if the uh, basis for the lawsuit has been made public through a congressional hearing or elsewhere, that person can still bring an action if they're an original source. So it's a complete red herring here. The other red herring that was put forth is a statement that there's a rule in the Eleventh Circuit relating to claim splitting. And forgive me, I cannot recall the name of the case that the government's referring to, but it's a decision by James C. Hill, and that specific case involved a situation where the KETAM action was brought, a settlement was reached, and then well after the fact, the um, plaintiff said, oh, and I have this retaliation claim. It makes perfect sense in that situation to, to apply principles of res judicata. What the government is ignoring is there are no reported decisions anywhere where a retaliatory discharge action was brought and then res judicata was used to bar the key TAM action filed at a later date. And there's a perfectly logical reason for that, because they are different causes of action and they involve different parties. A retaliation claim is personal to the individual. A key TAM action is an action brought on behalf of the government. One final point that I'd like to make is the respondent 
takes the position that the uh, False Claims Act is unique. Well, it's not unique. It's not unique in that when you look at the Major Fraud Act, there is a retaliatory discharge provision that is virtually identical to the False Claims Act. And in the Major Frauds Act, um, with respect to the Major Fraud Act, Congress made a, a conscious decision not to include an express limitations period. It's not — the False Claim Act is also not unique when you compare it to ERISA. ERISA — You can just go back to what you said. In, in the major whatever it is, is there any limitation at all or just a limitation on the key term and as yeah. here — as you contend is so here. The Major Fraud Act is a criminal provision that provides a retaliatory discharge provision for anyone who assists the government in bringing the criminal prosecution. There, there, in the Major Fraud Act, there is a specific limitations period of seven years in which the prosecution has to be brought by the United States. Oh, that's a, that's a criminal but, but there is it. But the criminal statute provides for a civil remedy for retaliatory discharge. And with respect to that retaliatory discharge provision in the Major Fraud Act, there is no limitations provision. Um, one other point that I want to make is that the False Claims Act is not, not unique when you compare it to ERISA. Um, ERISA is a statute that has essentially a retaliatory discharge provision as well in Section 510 of ERISA, 29 U.S.C. 1140. And courts, the federal courts, have consistently um, held that there is no express limitations period for Section 510, so we have to look to the limitations period under the most closely analogous state law cause of action. On the other hand, ERISA has numerous provisions, numerous other aspects of the statute that do have a limitations period. The limitations period for an action uh, for breach of fiduciary duty is a six-year period with a three-year tolling provision. So ERISA is a prime example of a statute where Congress has made a decision that when you have a retaliatory discharge provision, not to apply the statute of limitations period, that you look to state law, even though that federal statute in other aspects has other limitations provisions. Uh, if there are no further questions, we would rely upon our briefs. Thank you, Mr. Browning. The case is submitted.